Well, with the Lord's help and enabling, we continue our look at this psalm. Last week we looked at the opening three verses of Psalm 40. And at that point I wasn't sure, I confess, although we started at the beginning of the psalm, I didn't know if we were going to go on to look at the next section or even how much of the psalm we will go on to take. And in some ways, in that latter point, at least, I'm still not certain whether we will continue through the whole of this psalm. But this evening, the opening words of verse 4, I think, draw us at least to linger a little longer on the 40th psalm. And so I want to look at the 4th and 5th verse with you this evening. Last time we saw that uh, this psalm has certainly a, an application to the experience of the Christian and one that we love and one that we are thankful is there, one that we can enter into readily. But we saw also that that is so because at root this psalm deals with the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he has the first fruits endured these things how can we have any experience of what the psalm talks about but because he himself has trodden this way before us and so it is the lord jesus in the first place who is waiting patiently for the help of god and it is the lord jesus who is admired in the clay and experiencing the horrible, noisome pit. And as the Lord Jesus, as he waits upon the Lord, who is then drawn up and out of that miry clay and that horrible pit, and is then set upon the rock. We might think of it as the rock of his own salvation. He is the one who has made there to be a rock to stand upon. And he stands there with a new song in his mouth. Having been delivered. And so opened his mouth to praise God. For this great deliverance. And then we saw the effect that this deliverance has. The fruit of his exaltation and elevation. Many shall see. And shall fear and shall trust in the Lord. And so the Saviour for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. Knowing that it would indeed cause many, many who would see his work. Who would see his exaltation and would trust in the Lord. He was confident of the outcome of his work. And so verse 4 opens then with the Saviour, with the speaker of the psalm. The first person, the first voice here is that of the Saviour. And he is still contemplating those who have trusted in the Lord. That's how verse 3 ended. They shall trust in the Lord. And then blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust. And that takes us then 
to our first plain point this evening, which is a blessing from Jesus to you. A blessing from Jesus to you. So verse 4 then is a continuation of the thought that was opened up in verse 3. There the Saviour is contemplating the, the gathering in of many souls because of what they see in his accomplishment. Because uh, they see he's been lifted out, as it were, of the pit. Has been lifted out of, of the sufferings of the cross. They see him uh, being lifted out of the grave and the sepulchre. They see him being exalted up on high. They see, as it were, the doors and gates of heaven opened for him. They see the throne, the great white throne there upon which he sits. They see that the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted up on high. And so, I, if I be lifted up, shall draw all men to me. And we are thus drawn to trust this Saviour. And it is in the preaching of Christ crucified and risen. Christ in his humiliation and in his exaltation that we see. That our eyes are opened to what he has done and what has happened. And therefore we are drawn to him. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. We are warranted and assured by the, the victory of Christ over death. We are given comfort by the empty grave. And by his ascension to his father's right hand. All this leads us to know that he is someone we can trust. Someone we should trust. And so we commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. With confidence. We are assured <coughs> That he is trustworthy. That he has been delivered himself. That he knows how to be delivered from death. He knows the path. He knows the way. And so you are here tonight. Because you trust in Jesus. Because you have seen His elevation from the depths of his humiliation to the heights of his exaltation. And you have confidence in Christ. And so Jesus blesses you here. Jesus blesses you for trusting in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust. Now we know that the blessings that we receive is all of God. Everything that we have as Christians, it's of Him. The Lord 
designed this salvation. The Lord gave his only begotten son to trust in as our saviour. And then he required faith of us. But even the faith that he required of us, he gave to us. Supplying all our needs so that we could then trust in Jesus. So we could lay out our souls upon Jesus as our salvation confident in him he did it all it starts and ends with what he has done and yet there is here in verse 4 added to this a blessing for doing so a blessing for you for trusting in him a blessing for your soul for believing in Jesus but it wasn't my doing you say I had nothing to do with it. How can I be blessed for trusting in Jesus when Jesus himself gave me the trust and gave me the faith and gave me that enabling? I don't deserve any more blessing. I haven't done anything. But, dear soul, though it is the Lord who has enabled you, it is still your trust. Your soul reposes in him and this is a precious thing. Jesus loves to see sinners trusting in him. He knows that he purchased the grace for you. He knows that he sent his spirit into your heart. He knows that he supplied the word. That was brought to life in your heart. But he still loves to see you there trusting him. He loves to have souls cast themselves, throw themselves into his arms. Loves to gather us up near his heart. He loves us to cry out in desperation to him. Save me or I perish. He loves to have us saying, wash me, or I am damned. To have us crying, help me, for I cannot help myself. And Jesus adds blessing to you because you trust in him. He takes those sinners who cling to him. And he lifts up his hands in a holy benediction upon you. Oh, you have trusted in me, he says. Oh, wait until you see the blessings I have in store for you now. Wait until you see what a shower of favours and graces belong to you now. Wait until you see how much more I will do. That's why we call faith the mother grace. Because it begets abundant children in the soul. All manner of graces follow on and we are blessed. For many of us we can look back to when we were seeking the Lord, trying to seek him, trying to understand, trying to navigate our way through the requirements of scripture, the call of the gospel. And faith seemed to be this impossible necessity. 
And faith appeared to be all that there was and all that mattered and yet so elusive. You see, faith from the view of the seeker tends to fill our horizon. Dominates our view. All we know, what little we know, we must believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And we know we must and we know we cannot of ourselves. All we know is we're told to trust in Jesus. Nothing else is in sight. (coughs) But the Saviour here, he indicates that faith is, if you like, a, a sweet Trojan horse of heaven for the soul. He sends it in to conquer, but is filled not with enemy soldiers, but with all the graces that a heart will ever need. By that faith that he has implanted in your soul, the Lord has opened a conduit, a funnel of blessing. For you to lay hold of in your Christian life. And to experience the joy of and the comfort of for the rest of your days. And so he says, blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust. Faith is the pioneer grace. It goes in first. It is in the front line and in the vanguard of the conquest of your heart. But it opens up a great supply chain in its wake. And it makes sure that the supplies keep coming. That the heavenly supplies keep flowing into your soul. And it draws through into your heart behind itself. All the gifts of Christ. All the treasures of heaven. That you could ever want. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust. And so it is here with deep satisfaction that the Saviour contemplates these many souls. Many will see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Many who see Jesus both in the depths of his humiliation and in the heights of his exaltation, both in his cross and in his crown, They see it and they fear and they trust in the Lord. And the Lord is looking over at this great crowd of souls who believe in him. And he cannot refrain himself or restrain himself from holding aloft the arms of the great high priest of his people. And pronouncing such a sweet benediction upon them. They're blessed. (coughs) How much more there is to the Christian life. That initial act of faith, exercise of faith in Christ. Secondly, a mark of grace from Jesus for you. A blessing from Jesus for you. But secondly, a mark of grace from Jesus for you. We might think of this as the very first of the blessings of that benediction. 
Here is an assurance for the trembling heart. Don't we want assurance sometimes? It much to comfort us over the communion season, friends. But how often and sadly how easily the enemy can enter in trying to rob us of our comforts and of our joys. And the communion is past. Should we have been at that table? Should we have sat with the Lord's people? Did we hinder the blessing? Were we the Judas at the table? Even coming to a prayer meeting? Might think I won't go. But Jesus offers this mark, this evidence of a change, because he is observing us. He sees us trusting in him. And he notices something about all of his people. We who make the Lord our trust, you see, would respect not the proud would respect not such as turn aside to lies. What does that mean? What is the, the mark of grace of these words? Let's break it down a little. We respect not the proud. Remember to catch the context here. It's a contrast. This is the man who makes the Lord his trust and respects not the proud. Who are the proud here? Well, there are those who don't make the Lord their trust. There are those who have resisted trusting in Jesus. They're proud, you see. They won't trust him. They've been told to same as you. They've been pled with to trust him, same as you and I. But they have resisted. They are insistent on doing it their own way, on managing another day without Jesus and they have refused the Lord and they have insisted and continue to insist that they are okay that they don't need him that they can carry on as they are solve life's problems alone just be themselves time was that we agreed with them do you remember what that was like We didn't want to have to admit that we needed Jesus. We thought those who trusted in God and spoke like Christians, they were the ones who were weak. Christians were weaklings. And you know, friends, in many ways that's right. We know now that that's not so far from the truth. We are weak. But we thought we weren't. We do need the Lord. But we thought we didn't. The proud still insist that they don't. We don't care anymore about that. We don't want to make out anymore that we can manage alone. Do it our own way. Get by without the help of heaven. 
We have cast ourselves upon him. We have abandoned that proud independence of life and admitted our utter dependence. We know that we need him, isn't it short? Is that not so, friend? We know that we need him. Surely that is your experience. Surely that is your very precise position here tonight. You need the Lord. We cannot manage alone. We can't get by on our own. We need him. And so we have a different view entirely from the proud. We've walked too long in the pathways of pride. And where did that get us? It got us nowhere. We tried everything to manage without him. Now what? Now we've had a a mortal blow dealt to our pride. See, we're happily forced, if you like, and think of it like a happily forced now into being receivers, receivers of blessings, receivers of salvation and mercy and forgiveness. We're not doing that ourselves. We no longer respect the proud to resist God. We don't think that's what we want to be like. We pity them. We're not aiming to emulate them. We're running as far from them as possible. We used to be them. Now we're heart sorry for them. They cannot see their need. Desperately, they are trying to achieve the impossible, to prove the impossible, trying to prove they can manage without God. They can get along without Jesus, so they'll be all right without grace. We used to think such men, such people, such thinking. That was manly, that was strong, that was brave, that was independent. That's the way to be. But now we shake our heads and our heart aches when we see that pride of spirit against God. And that, that about turn, if you like, in our view of the proud man without God, that change a mark of grace. It's a mark of grace. The verse goes on, nor such as turn aside to lies. See, after the proud man comes the, the lying, deceiving, deceitful man. This man is lying to himself. You see, some people in pride who really think they can go on alone, who think they can do this, they haven't yet experienced the nothingness of what they are. They are, if you like, honest fools. But many, many come to the point where they know in their heart That they are hopeless sinners. And that it's all their efforts are not going to be enough. 
but they still cannot bring themselves to bow to the Lord and to his work upon the cross that they have so often spoken against. And so they lie. They turn aside to lies. They adjust their course and begin to manufacture this web of lies and excuses for their lives, trying to cover their sins. And And we did that, many of us as well. Kept up a desperate sort of facade. And we could do that for years, some people do. But for the Christian, that facade is gone. It has crumbled long ago. It's gone. And now we admit it. We need him. Even when I pretended I didn't, even when I thought I didn't, I was wrong. I was lying. I've got nothing left to offer my Saviour, only my sin. I cannot commend myself to the Saviour. I cannot say to him, save me, I'm good. I pray really well. I go to church lots. I put plenty of money in the plate. I've been loyal to the cause. I've done this or done that. I'm a good neighbor. I'm an honest person. It's stripped from us all the lies, all the deceit are torn and we are naked. But we're all, we're the more honest for it. And Jesus sees that that deceit is gone and knows that we trust now, not in our lies, that we might try to get others to believe, but we might believe ourselves. Not to ourselves. No, we trust now in the Lord and the one who was in the mighty clay for us. But was exalted and resurrected for us too. And to him goes out the trust of our heart. That, friend, is a deep and clear mark of grace for anyone. Thirdly, A wonderful vista of blessings opened up before your eyes for you by Jesus. A wonderful vista of blessings. Verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful work which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward, they cannot be reckoned up in order to thee, If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Notice here. Many, O Lord, my God. And yet later the verse develops into and thy thoughts which are to usward. The one speaker in the course of this verse opens out and includes all his people. And the blessings then of this life of faith are considered here in two ways. The wonderful works that he has done and the thoughts which are toward us and cannot be numbered. 
What are these wonderful works, we might think, that are included in the blessings of Christ? This is not here the wonderful work of the creation. That's a wonderful work. The parting of the Red Sea and bringing through children of Israel, a wonderful work. The feeding of the people with manna from heaven in Israel, a wonderful work. These are not the wonderful works in view here, surely. But primarily, the wonders of the works in view here are the wonderful works of salvation. How much more wonderful is the incarnation of Christ. God sending his Son. A spirit preparing a body. And a divine nature, a divine person, taking a human nature into union with himself. A wonderful work. What about the redemption accomplished by him? In that great atonement, as we've been looking at it in past months over the winter both in the active and in the passive obedience of Christ. Wonderful work. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works. The death of Christ. The resurrection from the dead of Christ. A wonderful, wonderful work. That great and glorious receiving of him back up to heaven, a wonderful work. The sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, a wonderful work. And then the regeneration of a soul, a wonderful work. The first exercise of faith in the heart, converted. Oh, what a wonderful work. Many are the wonderful works of the Lord. That sinner saved. That sinner washed. Their sin all taken away. The righteousness of Christ laid upon them. Justification. A wonderful, wonderful work of God. That soul begun to be made holy. Oh, what a wonderful work. The preservation of that soul from the evil of the world. Throughout their days to their very last breath. Such that death itself cannot catch their breath. But they then continue to live in heaven. Oh, a wonderful work. Not bringing them in safe into the kingdom and the glory of God. Oh, the wonders of the works of God. They all display the wisdom of God, the grace of God. Many, you think, friends, on the many wonderful works that there are. That he has done for you. The blessings of Christ for the Christian. 
But then it also speaks about the thoughts. And if there are many thought or many works, the thoughts cannot be counted. We can think of the many, and there are many wonderful works. But when we then go on to think about the thoughts that are toward us, we cannot count them. These are the thoughts that we had in the mind of God from everlasting. These are the thoughts from which all the mighty works, the wonderful works have sprung up. Every behind, every mighty act and wonderful act of God. There lay the thought of God, the plan of God. They were unknown, these thoughts, until they were revealed. Until in the outworking of his decree they come to fruition. The thoughts of God are unknown to us. And you know that there's an eternity ahead of the Christian. And every breath in glory will be the discovery of a new thought that God had toward us. And they'll never end. Thoughts of peace. Thoughts of mercy. Thoughts of love. Thoughts of glory. They are precious, precious thoughts. They are amazing thoughts. And God was thinking of every single person of the elect in these thoughts. And Christ himself, as it were, the representative of his people, receives them on our behalf. And says, thy thoughts which are to usward. Why? Because God thought of you in Christ Jesus, in his Son. And it pleased him greatly. And he kept on thinking of you in his son. And there are innumerable thoughts. They cannot be reckoned. If you were to begin to speak of them, there would be no end. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound like heaven? Dear friends, The Lord says there's a whole eternity of blessing to those who trust in him. Do you see what faith has brought you to and brought along with it the blessing of Jesus upon your soul? May he bless his word. Let us pray. (coughs)